Hey, Dan. What up, guy? You're into this fintech. What's all this I'm hearing about Current? You're going to like this guy. Current is a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have to drive to the bank anymore? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I manage an important part of my family's finances from one easy-to-use app. Well, I got to get this app, but where can I learn more? It's super easy. Just go to Current.com slash OK, O-K-A-Y, and download the app. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. Welcome to OK Computer. I'm Dan Nathan. I am joined with Deirdre Bosa. She is the host of CNBC's Tech Check. D, welcome back. It is great to be back. You've been gallivanting around Europe. I've been here in the studio most. I, I have been gallivanting. <laughs> and I think that makes a whole heck of a lot of sense, given just that my butt has been in the seat for three and a half months straight, just podcasting. You deserve it. Right there you go. I just want to give myself a little pat on the back. You and I have a lot to talk about. There's actually news breaking on pricing of Microsoft's Copilot. This is the AI fueled platform that's going to be a subscription service on top of Microsoft 360. So we're going to talk about all of that here. Also, stick around. We're going to be going into earnings season. We got a bunch of stuff kicking off. This is Wednesday after the close. When you're listening to this, we have Tesla and Netflix after the close. And I think those will set the tone for tech earnings season D. But also, I had a great conversation with a really good friend of mine, Dan Turan. He is the co-founder of Gutter Capital. And he brought along Rachel Nemeth, who is the CEO and co-founder of Opus. This is a digital platform that is really focused on some of the kind of working skills gaps that exist in this country and training deskless workers. So it was a really uh, interesting conversation that we had there. All right, let's get into it, Dee, because it is basically midday on Tuesday as we are recording this. And it's kind of a funny day in the markets because we had some of the big tech names selling off as a lot of the Bank stocks were rallying after better than expected earnings over the last couple of days. And then all of a sudden, this headline uh, about Microsoft and the pricing of their co-pilot comes out and the stock rallies 3.5% in a straight line. Let's talk about what the news is. I'm sure you're going to be um, talking about this a whole heck of a lot on CNBC for the next couple of days. So I was actually on TV talking about the air coming out of the AI bubble a little bit. And then this hits. And as you said, the stock shot up. And the reason I think it shot up is because both things can be true. The air can be coming out of that AI hype bubble a little bit, but then being reinflated by actual dollars and cents. And that is what investors want to see. I think they're tired of this user growth, unprofitable user growth. And what Microsoft is saying is they're going to charge, what is it, $30 per user for a suite of generative AI tools. And that is going to hit the bottom and the top line. And as we head into earnings season, I think it's no longer good enough just to say you have you slapped a chat bot onto certain parts of your business. You're going to have to show that you're making money from them. And that's what Microsoft essentially is doing here. And investors, they have to believe that businesses are going to pay for this. That's funny. Okay, so I, just to be really clear, the stock has rallied 5% off of its lows today since that headline hit. And, and again, okay, $30. There, there's a headline here that in the story that I was just reading here, Microsoft's chief financial officer, Amy Hood, has said the company's new AI products will become the software company's fastest business to hit $10 billion in revenue. Okay. And that makes total sense. But here's my only issue. If you think about a 5% rally on a $2.5 trillion market cap company, what is that discounting? So if you want to say the fastest business to $10 billion, we can back into what all of these subscription services 
could be by like user growth and this and whatever. But at some point, then it just becomes a recurring revenue stream. They're going to obviously continue to grow that business and add other things on. They're going to continue to lose some enterprise customers. We don't know essentially what the margins are going to be in the near term because the cost of the compute, right? All of the buildups. Yeah, it's going to cost in CapEx, right? right? Them getting these customers, it's also going to cost them more on the back end. So you're saying the move maybe not justified too bad. Well, listen, it's at an all-time high, okay? We have a NASDAQ that is at shooting distance from its all-time highs here. It just rallied 5%. I just think that it's interesting that you were on air talking about some of the air coming out. I think what you were <laughs> speaking about a little bit was that some of the semi-stocks had sold off. NVIDIA has been banging around here over the last few days. On Friday afternoon, it had a late-day sell-off. Again, some of the valuations on some of these things are getting a bit stretched here, but a headline like that can propel a move like that is pretty interesting at this stage of the game, day. Yeah, so maybe some of the air is coming out of this generative AI hype bubble, but just a little bit, right? We're still in this moment where this is the most exciting technology for investors. And I think also this belief that the biggest tech companies are going to dominate the space. The piece I was doing was on the startup world, right? And you have all of these AI companies raising hundreds of millions of dollars at billion dollar plus valuations. And they're essentially all doing the same thing. And what Microsoft put out today, a suite of products that you can use if you're a Microsoft customer, is actually more of a case against this sort of bubble in the private market. All these companies that are getting funding for essentially doing the same thing that Microsoft maybe eventually will do itself that you don't need another platform or product. This is just a feature that another big tech company has. Yeah. And it's interesting because if you think what Microsoft is leveraging off of OpenAI, which was obviously a startup, it's a very large startup right now with a huge valuation. And when you think of where all the, I know you talk to a whole bunch of VCs on a daily basis here, as do I, it just seems like there's just tons of money going to just a, a really narrow subsection of kind of AI startups right now. And I think you make a really great point is how much of a lead do some of these platform companies have and how will these smaller startups be able to compete? And we just honestly don't know, but there's going to be a lot of garbage that gets funded at valuations where companies are never going to be able to grow into a little bit. So I'm just curious like how you're thinking about that because we do run the risk of a, a mini bubble being inflated in the private tech markets at a time where I think a lot of VCs are trying to find a bottom, right? It's been a pretty rough 12 to 18 months or so. And now all of a sudden you have hundreds of millions of dollars that are chasing after some things where the biggest competitors are massive incumbents who already have big leads right. at the moment. There's this bifurcation in, in private markets and public markets, you could say as well. There's AI and then there's everything else. And this is known as the so-called VC winter. We haven't seen fundraising numbers and figures this brutal in years, even the VCs themselves that are raising funds, raising money from LPs. It's just been a really tough environment, except if you are a generative AI company. And you're right, it is ironic, um, Dan, because the big guys, the incumbents are going to do a lot of these things, but that's the VC model, right? It's spray and pray. You want to give as much money as possible because you got to put money to work and you hope for that one open AI to raise money at $10 billion plus valuation. And then it all pays off for those ones that eventually go bankrupt and go away. 
And this is a really good segue too, because you use the term VC winter. And I saw you on Friday with Kate Rooney discussing some of this, like with SVB, Silicon Valley Bank, leaving the kind of venture debt market. And this was really something that where, you know, a lot of VCs were encouraging when SVB was there and open for business for many of their portfolio companies to tap into that relationship. The way you guys framed it, I thought was really great here. And with the exit of SVB, now a lot of these companies with pressure on valuations, with maybe maybe slowing growth, if you will. The idea of doing down rounds is not something that's particularly palatable. And I just mentioned the banks are screaming over the last few days. JP Morgan just broke out. And I think it's really interesting that a lot of people thought that we did a pod in the throes of the SVB meltdown. And I remember talking with you and Jeff Richards and, and Rick Heitzman. We were like, is JP Morgan going to step in? Are they going to buy SVB? And all of you guys said, I don't think so. But it's funny that this headline caught me. And this is a guy that you might know, John Chino, who had been at SVB for a very long time and thought to be a really talented guy as it relates to their positioning and the VC and the tech growth sector. And JP Morgan just hired him. So they didn't buy SVB. They didn't buy any of the assets, but they hired some of the brains. So talk to me a little bit about that because it seems that JP Morgan is going to be extremely well positioned if they want to build something that looks like SVB within a massive money center bank and, and a huge infrastructure as it relates to investment banking. You're going to make me eat my words here, aren't you, Dan? And I think you're right, though. Credit where credit's due and that I don't think we thought that J.P. Morgan could come in and fill the space. And I will say there's a little bit of a distinction here. J.P. Morgan is no Silicon Valley bank and venture debt is different than debt financing for a startup, right? They don't necessarily translate into options and warrants and a piece of the company in the way in which SVB did. So yes, and, and I do hear that actually, that J.P. Morgan is stepping in as a compelling case. But and maybe correct me here if I'm wrong, Dan, but they're looking for a different kind of funding. They want companies that are already on a path to profitability or profitable or have positive cash flow. And if you're that kind of company, you can do some reasonable debt financing. But if you are a company in its earliest stages that is losing a lot of money, that has a yet to be proven business model, I think you're in a really tough place. JP Morgan private financers, they're, they're not going to fund you in this environment. No, I think that's a really good point. I think that JP Morgan's angle is that they want to have, they want to be in the catbird seat where it used to be Goldman and Morgan. Everyone, if you are the next Uber or whatever the heck it is, you need them to be lead left on your IPO. And so I think this is probably a move to solidly put themselves in that top three position. And then when you think about the size of the bank, the size of the deposits, like they can do a whole host of things that smaller investment banks that SVB certainly couldn't do at the size in which they were. I think they're thinking later down the life cycle and they want to be lead left on the biggest tech IPOs from here on out. Can I just say, I haven't heard the words lead left <laughs> in like over a year. It's just music to my ears. The IPO market has been frozen for so long. And I'm excited for these signs. They're really small right now that it could be opening up. But you're right. That's exactly what this is all about. There's this competition between the big banks to win this business. And of course, the most lucrative business is here in Silicon Valley and the tech companies. So that positioning, that jostling has already started. I did hear from a friend of mine here who's in corporate financing that HSBC did acquire, right, SVB's, some of SVB's business, but he was sort of arguing that they don't really have the culture to capitalize on it. So he was agreeing with you in that JP Morgan is best positioned to take this business. But again, 
Silicon Valley Bank's business was broader than just financing, right? They would do mortgages. They would do personal loans. They did wineries. There was this whole ecosystem here from the startup to the founder to the supporting industries. I don't know if that's going to be easily replaced. No, no doubt. Back to the IPO thing, it, it's interesting because there was that Kava deal and that's a small deal and it's not tech, it's a restaurant, but it was a consumer facing brand. And I think that if you're going to get the public again, interested in new issues, they have to be generally, I, I think in this kind of environment, things that, that consumers or investors, they know the products, they can touch and feel them. That's probably a good way to get back in there. But at the end of the day, like some of the biggest deals that, that a lot of us have been waiting for like the stripes of the world. These are companies that were going to be $100 billion minted, $100 billion market cap companies two years ago if they were to go public. And the latest rounds have been cut in half or something like that. So it'll be interesting to see with the NASDAQ up 35%, still down about 10% from its all-time highs in late 2021, if we are going to see one of these things test the waters. Because I don't know about you, man, it feels like pretty euphoric out there. It feels you got something hot and <laughs> there is a buyer for it in this stock market. You know what I mean? For some, but again, it's the bifurcation that I mentioned before. It's AI and it's everything else. And even you look at the Magnificent Seven playing into generative AI, some in more concrete ways, some in much, much looser ways. But And they're the giants. They're already big. They're seen as the winners because they have the scale. Whereas an Instacart that's not really involved in the AI space, that's part of the gig economy, that still continues to be not all that impressive. I think that's a harder proposition. So I'm not sure. I'm not hearing that there's any rush. I think ARM will be really interesting. The SoftBank chip design, SoftBank-backed chip designer, because it certainly plays into the whole AI hype cycle and SoftBank and all these interesting places. All right, let's let's move to some earnings here because Wednesday after the close, we're going to have Tesla and the implied move in the options market is about 6%. So do the math, 6% on a $900 billion market cap. Okay, like th this thing is expected to move one way or another. And if I go and look and see how this stock has moved over the last four quarters, it's moved on average about 8%. Okay, so think about that. And so in the last four quarters, it was a much smaller stock here, but this thing has gone absolutely ballistic. It made a low, I think, in the first week of January of $100. We're trading very near $288. It feels like, again, things that you've probably noticed this in, in your career covering the stock market. When things go to nine, they usually go to 10 or at 90 to 100. You're at 900 billion. Maybe we get back to a trillion. This was a trillion dollar market cap company prior to its collapse. I also would make one point, D, is that stocks that sell off 75%, which this stock did from its highs from late 2021 to its lows earlier this year, they can do it again too. Now, it just doesn't feel like anybody's worried about anything right now, but I got to tell you, there's a massive price war going on. And, and we saw it in the way GM and Ford traded on Monday. I think both those stocks were down four or 5%. Ford is slashing the price of what we thought was this great electric F-150, right? With tremendous, they dropped the price by 17%. And we have a situation with Tesla where their gross uh, margins, uh, automotive margins are expected to be, I don't know, they came in at like what, a little over 19%. There's some suggesting they could be as low as 17%. That's not too far away from Ford and GM. How do you justify the valuation here? We already have the deliveries for Q2. They were up 83% year over year. It was a pretty easy comp, right? Making it look really good. Is there anything that can take this stock down or make it correct here? I understand what you're saying, but I also think there's another way of looking at that F-150 price cut is that Ford has had to do that so much earlier than Tesla has had to. They don't even really have that product out there in any scale or anything yet. And they're already doing that. So I think that Tesla comes from a 
bigger position of strength. But in terms of that demand and EV demand overall, it is a good question. And the Chinese automakers and Tesla's presence over there, what do you make about the charging networks? Because I think that has been a major catalyst for the recent rally we've seen. It's a plug. Like literally, it's a plug. So so like, for instance, I've always thought, and I had a Ford Mustang Mach-E a couple years ago. It didn't work for me in a city like New York, partially because of the charging situation. I'm not telling you that if I had access to the Tesla, you know, supercharging network, that would have made my experience any different. And so like, to me, is it like $100 billion opportunity for Tesla because they have this early lead in the build out of these things. It really could be. I don't know. At the end of the day, I guess the bigger issue is that if Tesla really does have automotive margins that are like 17 and they stay there, then it is an auto company unless this other things start to happen. Full self-driving, the build out of like all that sort of stuff. And again, I just take investors or I take listeners back to what happened last year from its highs. You couldn't give this stock away nine months ago. You know what I'm saying? And, and now they're buying it up to 300% or something like that, trading at a crazy multiple when make no mistake about it, the competition is here. Okay. And the price war is here. And as long as I've been investing in tech, anytime that you have a price war, okay, in a very hot market like this, and you have that sort of margin pressure, it generally does not end well for valuations. Now, the market is saying something very different right now, but I think it's also important to remember that can change pretty quickly too. I think though, the bulls, and if you are, you're not thinking of this still. I know that where the margins are going, it's looking more like an automaker than a tech company, but Elon Musk is so focused on artificial intelligence, yet to prove itself, certainly, and I don't think we have a good gauge on whether it's going to be a winner in this space, whether he's actually going to have a network of robo-taxis, but that's what the bulls grab onto. And I do go back to just the remarkable fact that you can do a recall over software, over the internet. And thats it's just been such a game changer. And it's taken the other auto companies just so long to get there or get even close to it. And even what Tesla did during the pandemic with its chips, it's just a better operated. Even if it's an automaker with technology characteristics, so much better than some of the others. And I don't know if that justifies its valuation. You're in a better position to judge that than I am. But I think that it rests on this idea that Musk has something up his sleeve. It's a question, though, because Elon Musk is coming back down to ground, right? Tesla's firing on some cylinders, but you've got Twitter, <laughs> which is not doing so well. And he's not untouchable. Not everything he touches turns to gold. Let, let's talk about that really quickly. I keep hearing this from some folks here, like when I'm talking about Twitter and what's going on there. And I know you've been reporting on this. Revenues are expected to be down 50%. They, they can't keep advertisers. This new CEO, she really does look like a figurehead in something that Elon never was going to like lock into that business model of ad supported. So we wanted to go with the subscription service. It doesn't seem to be working here. With the introduction of threads and getting to 100 million users. And I'm just curious, like, what, what are some of your quick takes on threads? Because I heard this a couple times this week is like, if this really does take steam here, and they're able to do this in, in an ad supported way, but they don't even need to monetize just yet, that would be meta. Elon could find himself in a position where he literally does, and he's threatened to do this, he suggested this, he could just bankrupt the company, and he could put the banks that are on the hook, he could basically just say, that's it, he could still operate the company, but you wipe out, like, basically, 
basically the existing equity. The banks are going to be hanging around for whatever they think, how this thing gets recapitalized or anything like that. Is that stuff that you're hearing? Because I keep hearing people say that. And I think I'm hearing it louder now that Threads had such a great, successful launch in such a short period of time. I actually hear the opposite, that engagement at Threads falling off a cliff. And I have to say, I've been waiting to ask you this, actually, really curious if you've been using or what you think of it. I haven't had a great experience with it so far. To me, it reminds me of Clubhouse. Something that folks got really excited over that in theory was a good idea, but just wasn't sticky. And to me, my threads, I I don't know how to change my following list and figure out how to do it, but I just want to replicate Twitter off of Twitter. That's all I want to use it for. I don't really want to see my friend's Instagram posts posted on threads. Here's a couple things I'll just say on that. So the protocol in which threads is being built on is going to make it so that you could transport your entire following. You can transport your entire, you know, all all your data and all your content, which I think is actually really interesting here. Okay. So the other thing I just say is I'm not an active social user. I've not been on Twitter for months. And so I do have an Instagram. I think the ability to toggle back and forth between Instagram and threads is really something that we have not seen from a mobile social app situation right now, because if you think about it, if people are there for the Instagram to show their pictures of their kids or whatever the heck it is that they do over there, you could replicate that following on threads and you could follow news stories. And that really is, I guess the hope is that's going to be the real time search engine, right? Which is what we all know Twitter to be. So you have these two things that you can toggle back and forth from. I think that is a really interesting concept. We have not seen that yet. You could have said that's what kind of Twitter and spaces was or this, that, whatever. It hasn't really been the case. The way I'm thinking about it is it's a very disorganized Twitter right now. Okay. They obviously rushed this thing out in in a very quick manner and they got to a critical mass that I think a lot of people are going to give them the benefit of the doubt here because listen, engagement on Twitter has dropped off like crazy. The advertisements are really bad. Even their own Twitter spaces, which we were all using a bit, that stuck around a bit longer than Clubhouse wasn't particularly working. And so to me, I think that people are going to be willing to give this a shot. And especially if you buy into the fact that maybe, and and listen, I I think all of us giving Zuckerberg and Facebook a pass for all the misdeeds. It's wild. What a a world we live in. (laughs) It is is crazy. So we're rooting for Zuckerberg all of a sudden. Yeah, but maybe we've gotten to a place where they're actually really good at not amplifying anymore the stuff that makes us so angry and want to fight. I don't know. You know what I mean? But I'm so skeptical. And, and the only thing I would say about that, and I don't know if I'm the minority in this, this is purely anecdotal. I want less social media, not more. I do not want to be able to toggle between my Instagram and my Twitter. My Instagram is very private. My Twitter is very public. I, I feel weird about seeing my friends on a Twitter-like platform. I don't know that I want to know <laughs> what they're thinking on a day-to-day basis. I want to hear what you're thinking on the markets and companies and topics, but it's, yeah, I, I don't know. It's just, it's not giving me something that I think is compelling. I, I do think it's interesting though, that going back to, let's say WhatsApp that has over 2 billion monthly active users, and they've never really turned on monetization in that meta can spend a lot of time trying to iterate on this product and get it right. I was also very skeptical. Clubhouse was not a big fan. I thought that space, that kind of live micro podcasting, whatever you wanted to call it was Twitter's to lose because your social graph mapped to Twitter, right? And if you were inclined to go on a Twitter space, but it is interesting that people are just not interested in being on spaces anymore because you can just see that. You can see of your following who's on and what's being hosted. So that ended up being very ephemeral. I actually do think it's really interesting that if we can put the Zuckerberg and the kind of 
all the stuff that we went through from 16 and 18 in front of Congress and all this other stuff behind us. And you can think of a world where maybe those three properties really do segregate very different behaviors that you have on your mobile app and some of the integration and your ability maybe to transport a lot of the data. I don't know. It could be really interesting. And, and let me just tell you, D, and you've seen this, Meta was trading at 290 when that Threads was introduced, it's up 5% in a straight line since then. So investors are excited about it, even for a stock that's up more than 200% from its 52-week lows. And I'm not telling you right or wrong that investors have this right, but it is interesting to see it confirmed, at least by the stock market. And isn't that amazing? We thought we were going to get the metaverse. Instead, we got a, a Twitter copy. And it does say something larger about social media and technology. And I think there was like a Jack Dorsey tweet, right? And he said something similar. He said, we thought we were getting autonomous vehicles. Instead, we got five different social media platforms that all look the same. And I would just say that Meta has been up. It's been a, such a remarkable performance this year on some really boring stuff, efficiencies, right? The Zuckerberg's year of efficiency and go, creating a, another copy. But that has been a really good business. Instagram itself, right? was a copy. It's copied aspects of Snapchat. Now it's doing Twitter. It's a great second mover. And that's what investors like about Meta. But is it going to be the most innovative company? I, I don't know still. The last one we'll just hit before we get out of here. Like Netflix is, this is a stock that traded in late 2021, $700. It traded as low as I think $170. So uh, 700 to 170. Now it's up nearly 200%. Here And when you think about it, what's embedded in this, there was a time where we could have said six months ago that Netflix has never been cheaper. The positioning among a very crowded streaming space was probably never better. And so I think that as they get ready to report Wednesday after the close, it'll be really interesting to see how investors treat any sort of hiccups. And when I say hiccups, I don't think that any of us are expecting any major disasters other than the fact that these stocks have run so much. And, and also so recently, they're obviously well off those 52-week lows but they really run into these prints. And so I'm just curious, what do you think sentiment is? And will we be in a situation where investors will shoot first and ask questions later? Or are they more inclined to say, okay, you know what? We had the bear market in 2022. We're in a new bull market here. Yeah. And it's not going to be a straight line higher. Are, are they going to be more accepting, let's say, of maybe cautious guidance for the back half of the year? It's a good question. I think that for the streaming platforms and Netflix in particular, it's going to be all about this Hollywood writers and now actors strike. How are they going to respond to that? What does that mean for the business? And I think that what they say is going to be so closely scrutinized because there's implications for other companies. But what is it? Netflix is talking about video games again now. It seems to always do this when they hit a hiccup and they haven't you know, really had a lot of success with it. So I'm curious about their outlook for the rest of the year and how long they think that this Hollywood strike is going to last. I do give Netflix credit. In some instances, people are really shocked at how little visibility they have in, in kind of the user growth and the volatility quarter over quarter. And the stock has historically been very volatile on that sort of number. And you bring up a great point when you start hearing about these other verticals where they could move into, you start saying to yourself, have they tapped it out? And then just like these other companies, listen, if Disney's going to cut back on original content. The question is, does Netflix need to keep their foot on the pedal as hard too? And so you start seeing flattening sort of growth as it relates to user growth and for demand for new content abates a bit. And the key thing that Netflix loves to reiterate, which I think is totally fair, is that they are profitable. They're coming from such a better position of strength. They can afford to do this a little bit more than a Disney Plus, but it also raises interesting questions for the mega caps, right? The Amazon, the Apples that are spending a ton on sports rights and creating their own content. They don't really need to do that. It doesn't affect them as much 
the strike as it does Netflix. It'll be interesting how they respond and if they put money into other growthier parts of their business. Yeah, last thing I'll just say this is that Spotify has also rallied 200% off of its lows. And I've kind of long thought, if you're talking about other verticals, for Netflix that like streaming, especially obviously audio, but their move into podcasting would really fit Netflix's business model. If you think about it, when you think about where margins are for Spotify, they're somewhere in the kind of mid to high 20s where Netflix has got a higher margin, I think somewhere in the mid 30s or so. You say to yourself, this is a company that's supposed to be gap profitable next year in 2024, $34 billion market cap, $30 billion enterprise value now that Netflix is at 200. I think that's a deal that regulators would probably let happen when you think about the size of the platform companies that Netflix is really competing with. When you think about Apple, you think about Amazon, right? You think about oh, Disney. Interesting. So, so to me, that's one I think is, is really interesting, but who knows it'll ever happen. I love playing the dating game when it comes to m and I like you know? that. I haven't heard. Uh, yeah, that's a good one. What do you think Apple and Disney now? It's funny. I, I don't know about you. I feel like Bob Iger We'll figure this out. I feel like he'll get this thing right. And, and so he left it. We if anyone can do it, yeah, it's him. But even to hear from him that this is so tough was remarkable. Yeah, no doubt. That'll be interesting. We're going to get Apple, I think, the week after next, Disney in a couple of weeks, too. It'll be interesting to see how these stocks trade into their prints here. They're all trading Apple's at a new all-time high. Microsoft today, again, at a new all-time high. The euphoria in the market, we have a NASDAQ 100 that's up 44% of the year. The NASDAQ's up 37%. The S&P's up 19%. At the end of last year, it felt so dire. It just felt so dire. It's just pretty amazing. It's remarkable to people here in the Valley, too. I have all these conversations. We thought last year, some of the bankers would move out and stuff. And <laughs> they didn't to their delight because there's a lot going on here now these days. No doubt about it. All right, listen, Dee, I really appreciate you joining me from one market out there in San Francisco. That's Deirdre Bosa. She is the host Always of CBC pleasure. Tech Check. I appreciate it. Stick around for my conversation with Dan Turan and Rachel Neiman. Hey listeners, it's Dan here. I want to tell you about a company that I'm really excited about. It's called Current. It's a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. I'm a new Current customer. It's already helping me and my entire family manage our finances, all from one easy-to-use app. So try Current for yourself and get the app by going to current.com slash okay. That's current.com slash okay. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank member FDIC. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. I am here with Dan Turan. He's the co-founder and managing partner at Gutter Capital. Many of our listeners know Dan from his prior contributions to the Fine Podcast here. I'm also here with Rachel Nemeth. Rachel is the co-founder and CEO at Opus, which is a training platform for deskless workers. We're going to get into all of that. We're going to get into why Dan invested, I think, pre-seed a few years ago, participated in your Series A round not too long ago. We want to hear about how your company has changed and, and the problems that you're looking to solve there and why Dan and Gutter have been a great partner um, for you. But welcome to the pop. Thanks for having us. Good to be back. All right, let's do this thing because it's really interesting. Let's kind of set the stage. A lot of our 
listeners, they come to us for some of our market commentary and some of the stuff that we'll have to say about how markets are reacting to things going on in the economy. And one of the things right now, and I think this is, Rachel, very much in your wheelhouse, and I know, Dan, through some of your own views, but also the way you invest capital at Gutter, you guys are really focused on the macro, okay? One of the things that is confounding a lot of pundits like me, market participants, economists, strategists, is what's gone on in the workplace, okay? Well, and really specifically in the workforce. And so I think we were all this general consensus when this pandemic hit in 2020 that unemployment was going to go to levels that we have not seen in a really long time. No one knew how that was gonna shake out and really, if you think about it, the fact that we just, I think, had a June unemployment print of 3.6%, this is the one thing that's confounding a lot of folks here. Can we start with the macro a little bit? I'd love to get your thoughts because you, as an entrepreneur and as somebody who's obviously been in the workforce for a while, this has been a theme that, that's very close to you. So I'm just curious, talk to us a little bit about the macro and how you've gotten really focused on, on the workforce in general and your professional endeavors. We should start with our thesis years ago when I first met Dan. It was the line I rattled off to every potential investor I met, which is that 80% of the global workforce doesn't sit at a desk all day, yet 99% of venture capital dollars are going to the 20% who do. So this is a largely underserved workforce to begin with, yet there's no shortage of need on the technological side. And when you look at what's happening today, where employers are still facing unprecedented amounts of labor shortages, the quit rate is higher than ever. When you're seeing an entire generation retire early, an entire generation enter early, and this huge skill gap, we're not surprised to see it. But I understand why it's confounding a lot of people. It really comes down to particularly the businesses that we serve right now at Opus. They're continuing to grow and expand right now. And I won't get too far into it yet on the restaurant side, but these employers can't cut labor. They have increased demand right now. They're consolidating their businesses. They're acquiring more businesses. At least when it comes to frontline work, those numbers aren't dipping. One other thing that's very interesting, I think that's a great setup in terms of where venture dollars have been invested. The other thing that happened in early 2020 is we basically turned off the spigot on immigration overnight. So dropped by 75% over the past two years. It's recovered, but it's still 25% below the pre-COVID levels. And on a workforce that's about 160 million workers, we're talking about millions of workers that just never came. And so when we look at the service services inflation and contribution to CPI, and particularly for the lowest wage workers, which are often coming over our borders, it's pretty clear why there's a shortage of those workers today. And I do think one of the things that's fascinating about the last couple of years is the other thing that everyone thought was going to happen in addition to unemployment was that the lowest wage workers were going to get hosed. And like the narrative even today is that inflation hurts poor people. When you look at the numbers, the lowest decile of workers who on average make $12.50 an hour, they actually erased 40 years worth of wage drift away from the highest wage workers. They're the biggest winners from a wage perspective of all of COVID. And I think it's interesting how Rachel sees that play out day to day in what's become a knife fight for talent. Every store has a sign in the window, help wanted. You see all these memes about trying to retain talent, but that's like basically the business that, that Rachel's in. The immigration piece is one that there was seven years ago, it felt like we were going to go in this way for tighter immigration. And then like this new administration comes in and, and we think that it, it's going to open up some of those things. And I talked to a lot of folks who are far 
better schooled in economics than me. And, and, and whatever their political uh, affiliation is, they will put their finger on the fact that this is a huge problem for us in our country uh, on, on the employment front. And so the fact that we're still I know, printing 60, 70 year lows and unemployment rate and your, your point about service inflation, that's not going away, right? Until we have a loosening of the workforce. So that's the macro setup right now. So talk to us a little bit about what are some of the problems that, and again, frontline workers is something that you've been exposed to, it sounds like for a while. How has your thought process evolved as far as like the training and, and how you got to where you are? Because you you did pivot a little bit, right? At oh, the, a whole uh, lot. Yeah, okay. All right. <laughs> I want to hear about Let's that. Let's about it. And we'll put this in the show notes a little bit because Dan wrote a great blog uh, on Gutter Capital, I, I think a few months ago when you participated in the Series A and was really telling a, a little bit of this. And your experience with Managed by Q is interesting too, because I remember when we first met in 2019, these these were a lot of the same issues, some of the same problems that you were trying to solve with your company back then. So I'm curious, do you, you want to start a little bit with that pivot in, in, in 2020? Because it seems like you were just kind of the right person with the right experience and, and looking to do something that not too many other, at least startups are, are looking to do right now to solve what, what is an increasingly challenging problem. The whole story of what we were doing before COVID, for lack of a better term, was about access. It still is about access. This is about and, and is addressing the dearth of technology that's built for the 110 million American workers who don't sit at a desk all day. That has not changed. What changed in March 13th of 2020 is I think what the date was. Dan had already invested in my previous company, ESL Works. We delivered English language training to employee cell phones. Access problem number one, right? When 23% of the workforce doesn't speak English, how can you make them more productive and communicative? When COVID hit, we, in a matter of seconds, had lost an entire industry uh, and all of our business. We decided to stop invoicing customers, the majority of whom were multi-unit restaurants. We knew globally restaurants were shutting down, but we saw a new rising need for safety training. This was a workforce that, unlike the three of us, had to go into work. They had to make food. They had to deliver it. The pivot with a lot more in between was me calling Dan and saying, listen, ESL Works is over, but we have good technology that can get good, accessible training to frontline workers. Let's deliver COVID safety training to employee cell phones for free. And then we decided to just figure out the business later. So it was about proving out and validating that this is about accessibility to good technology and knowledge so that you can actually use. It yeah. seems like you're like the perfect example. And again, we kept on hearing that this pull forward or the digital transformation and the speed in which it happened. And so you just started out by saying it was a text-based thing. It was meant to be really simple. And especially if you think about some of these workers the sort of devices in which they would rely on to get this sort of information. But it seems like you shifted fairly quickly to make this uh, add a lot of texture to the platform. I'm just curious, Dan, at that point, like, what did you see? And, and I remember you and I talking a lot back then. It wasn't just a business opportunity. You really felt like this was like a really great opportunity to move a platform uh, ahead that was really necessary. I'm just curious. But at your point, you were a seed sort of investor, but this was going to be something that you were going to spend some more time on and help think about a bit. Just for context, James and I had invested at the pre-seed, which I think was 2018. We invested again two years later, right as COVID hit in 2020. And then we ended up leading around following that and then investing at the A. So we, we've been investing in Rachel and are grateful to have been working with her for a long time and, and consistently over the last uh, couple of years through, through lots of changes in the business. 
from first principles, like the insight that we were investing in never changed. We were backing someone who had deep industry expertise. Rachel spent many years of her life running kitchens in New York City, including for Danny Meyer. She saw the problem firsthand. And as we understood it, it's what she said in a nutshell, 110 million workers, and these tools are not built for them. They don't sit at a desk and they don't speak English. And when you look at the, there's something like 1,300 pieces of LMS learning management software on the market that's been built over the last 20 years. And if you look at what they all have in common, they're built around someone who sits at a computer, has an email address and speaks English. You know, in our business, we want to find a mission-driven founder, deep industry expertise, who's got a real insight that other people don't see. And that's what led her to the first iteration of the business, which was uh, SMS-based training for English, functional English. But in our view, COVID pulled forward what was always part of her vision, which was accessibility and the sort of rich platform in terms of like our involvement. Yeah, I had the the good fortune of having recently left WeWork. I literally didn't know what to do with myself. And Rachel was one of the founders that I really admired that was doing something really interesting in the portfolio. She happened to have a need for some support. And so when COVID hit and she decided to pivot the business, I was able to recruit some of my former colleagues from Managed by Q who ended up joining her as her co-founders and spend a little bit of time with them in the trenches as they replatformed and ultimately it emerged a business that was much bigger than when it entered. And I think this is important for any part of the audience that's founders or investors or whatever. Over and over again, like we're reminded that we're all sailing the same sea. So these big macro events happen and there is always companies that thrive that you don't expect. That is where good management really matters. And there are so many founders that would have been tapping the mat with half of the adversity that came at Rachel. And instead, like she came out of this with a much more interesting company. And so we've continued to, to invest in her. So let's talk about the, the platform itself. You know, you went from this text-based thing. It was really focused and you have a, a background in English as a second language. So it seems like that seems like a perfect intersection. They're spending a lot of time so far talking about the restaurant workers and such, but it sounds like this platform could be you know, used for a lot of different industries. So let's talk about the platform and let's talk about like the industry focus and, and how you broaden it out away from, let's say, dense populated areas like New York City that have some very unique characteristics, but they're common among some of the largest population centers in, in, in the U.S. Opus is a skill training or skill building platform for businesses with a frontline workforce. Frontline used to be during COVID, it was nurses and doctors. Now it's much broader. Cooks, servers, packers, pickers, drivers, you name it. So what we are trying to do is basically break learning management systems and burn them to the ground and rebuild them for this population. I'm not going to be that polite about it. This is the problem is you can't name one that any of your listeners would uniquely identify. It's a highly fragmented market. In order to solve for that, it isn't just being the next, I'll name like Docebo, that's a publicly traded. There's lots of those companies. And it frankly, isn't as simple as saying, okay, we're going to add every language under the sun into it. It has to start by doing the opposite of what they did, which is we proved out that what we were doing worked by starting with the end user. We didn't build anything for Bonnie and HR or Joe, the CEO. What we were doing was building directly for the frontline worker. That was the initial product was text message and proving out that in under 12 seconds, we could get an employee training. It's about speed to market when you're doing what we're doing. When the turnover rate is 130% in some of these businesses, you have to get into the pockets and the hands of employees as fast as humanly possible so they don't leave. So we started there. Now, two years later, what Opus does is helps employers, speaking of this speed to market problem, it helps them generate any kind of training under the sun. 
for use cases like compliance, standard operating procedures, corrective action, new hire training with our AI-powered technology, while at the same time getting that to the hands of their frontline workforce in minutes. And then there's this last piece that a lot of people don't realize. I'm giving away the sauce right now. You have to build for the frontline manager. Anybody who has worked in any form or fashion in restaurants or who was a lifeguard or whatever knows that there was that one 21-year-old kid who was a green manager and also needed the same level of coaching in order to be able to serve their team. So we built technology specifically for that person you just described what a lot of normies like me, okay, structuring, unstructured data, doing prediction <laughs> stuff. You use your AI power. I'm trying to make this point. The, the public markets have become captivated to the tune of trillions of dollars in market cap with a lot of stuff that all of these companies had been investing in and building in the background. They We've been using machine learning and AI like these things for a long time. But, and I'm sure, Dan, you guys, you and James over there at Gutter, you're seeing a lot of business plans that have been reoriented in the last few months in and around these sorts of themes. But I'm curious, how were you thinking about like these sorts of technologies? Again, were you building them yourselves? Were you licensing them and integrating them into your own development? Just because these, this is a theme that public markets, whether you're a trillion dollar market cap or you're a, a series A technology enabled like startup, you have to actually be thinking about this a little bit. For us, when it comes to LLMs or whatever you may be working with, in our case, it's about enhancement. It's not about proprietary technology. It's about leveraging it in meaningful ways. And for us, it's content. Nobody wants to pull, to, to open up a training management system and look at 10,000 courses for their workforce. They want to be able to customize. We are invested. you finding them pretty customizable, like some of the stuff that you guys are testing right yeah. now? And is that, and this is, again, is this why we're having this moment, I think, both in, in public and private markets? Because for the first time in a long time, you have a viable commercial chatbot that people say, oh, I could integrate that into my yeah. thing. You probably didn't feel good about doing that a year and a half ago into some of the things that were on the market. A year and a half ago, we were investing in translation technology for obvious reasons. So we wanted to be the best. We wanted to do it fast. We wanted to get 99% accuracy. So we did that, right? We can translate any content into 100 global languages. But with the emergence of OpenAI being more readily available for businesses like ours, it was the obvious choice. I still remember being in the room with our executive team, and there, it wasn't even a discussion. It was, well, this solves the content problem. This is how we do it. We aren't forcing AI into the product. We're solving a problem faster. So you're not renaming the company Opus AI anytime soon? God, no. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I think I'd, We did look for the URL, though. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Yeah, you, I think we've had this conversation and James, my partner, despite literally he taught the course on AI at Johns Hopkins 15 years ago with the TA. We are also not an AI fund. We're not investing in base models. But our view is there is a generation of companies being built today, just like companies like Salesforce and uh, Netflix were cloud companies. They weren't going around saying Netflix cloud, Salesforce cloud, it is called Salesforce cloud now. But they weren't pitching themselves as cloud companies. They were just application layer companies led by strong technologists that were playing on the front foot using the best technology available today. And in this case, you have Jeff, who's Rachel's co-founder and the CTO of the company, who is deploying novel technologies to solve problems that they understand well for the customer. And I think that's the difference between there will, of course, be tremendous value created in people building the base models. That's not what Opus is building. That's not where we're so interested in investing. I don't think we do very well there. But I do think that every company will become an AI company. And 
I recommend checking out the use case and like the application of AI at Opus is really quite incredible where you can give the application guidance on even like the voice and tone of the brand, what content you need to develop. And within moments, it's created interactive training content based on some of their templates and formulations. Dan, as like an advisor to a lot of the companies in your portfolio, you're obviously now seeing lots of pitches that are like are AI first for all intents and purposes. But the way you just describe how you've been working with Rachel and her team for years now, this was always a part of it. So I'm just curious, like the wheat from the chaff sort of thing, are you seeing just a rush of ideas that people think if it's led with AI are investable right now, given the, the moment that we're in? And then just give me a sense of, are a lot of your portfolio companies like in a position like Rachel and her team are here where they have been thinking? I think, and I'm a little bit cynical here, having sat through the, the metaverse and uh, Web3 and crypto and watched my-, well, my you were in a Web3 fund? No, we ago. haven't taken the That's bait uh, on any of it. Yeah, we've all watched our, our dear friends and colleagues tr change their Twitter bios over and over again. I'm a little bit cynical, but I do think that the difference between sort of these application layer companies today, the ones that win and the ones that don't, it's not clear to me that pitching yourself as AI first. I think there are plenty of investors who will pay a premium for a company that can effectively convince them that it's an AI company, but often they're not. They're building application layer software, which is awesome. I do think that it's not clear to me that when we're sitting here in five years, seven years, looking at big winners from AI that are IPOing, that it's going to be the ones that had AI in the pitch deck, unless, of course, they're trying to build these big base models. But the teams look very different. The capital required is very different. And I think the same way, the big winners of cloud, not including the incumbents, Amazon, Google, Microsoft, it would have been really hard to predict. You look at like the most valuable public software companies today, and I don't think if you looked back that cloud was probably in most of their pitches. It just was a natural evolution of the business, again, to solve a customer problem they understood well. That, that, that's actually a really great analogy. And as somebody who's like a builder, Rachel, these are things that you you know, contemplate and you have very skilled people, your CTO and, and the like here, like this is what they do. I, I agree with that. There's a really funny moment and you guys, maybe we'll put it in the show notes. I think if you go back in like 2008, Larry Ellison had a hissy fit on an earnings call. It literally, he kept on saying, what the hell is cloud computing anyway? And he's actually, he was making your point. Salesforce was bubbling up and Benioff was, you know, one of his ex-guys and everything like that. And it was just a really, you gotta go listen to this video, right? like, <laughs> because he's like, this is what we do. So I just think it's interesting. But let's talk a little bit about the business model here and where you guys, where, where you see opportunities, because it seems like obviously we've spent some time in deskless sort of workers. Like, how does it broaden out? You use the term also like multi-shop restaurant or, or yeah. something like that or whatever. This is not something that probably works well in a one-off sort of situation, a uh, mom-and-pop restaurant. It's multi-unit groups. We made the decision to start with multi-unit restaurants. It's the second largest employer in the United States. There's a million restaurant locations in the U.S., 650,000 of them are part of multi-unit groups. It's an obvious solution. <laughs> I'm biased because I worked in that industry for 13 years, and so did my mom and my grandpa, so I knew all of these problems. But the way that we're thinking about the world with mid-market and enterprise is really important because it's about impact. Our mission is to create a world where every frontline worker has a good job. I can't do that by selling directly to SMBs. I have to get market share. When you also look at the way that markets are shifting, particularly in restaurants, when times get tight, they consolidate. They buy up real estate and they open up shop. So we saw this in the last recession. Whatever you may feel about what's coming, you're already starting to see Roos Chris was just acquired by Darden. You're seeing Kava went public. Sweetgreen, it's 
doing some stuff with automation. They're all investing in multiple ways in order to get a bigger footprint. So that's where we set our sites so that we can reach more. And does automation, it's funny, before the pandemic, it's interesting. And again, that was like the pure definition of black swan. Right. But remember, we were obsessed. The robots are going to take the jobs yeah. and like robot pizza makers and all that sort of stuff. And, and it's interesting. Now we are like on the other side of this thing. And it seems like low single digit unemployment for all the demographic shifts and the immigration issues and all this other stuff, the way supply chains have reoriented. It seems like we're, that's here to stay. So this seems like this is a problem you're going to be working on uh, and hopefully succeeding every step of the way for a long time. And I'm just curious, was that fascination or the fear of automation in hindsight, was it always silly in a way? Because you've heard that example of when ATM machines came around 40, 50 years ago, it was going to be the death to the, the, the bank teller. Well, actually, it wasn't. I have lots of opinions about automation. I'll keep it simple. That the biggest burning problem with these businesses, whether it's retail, whether it's restaurants or manufacturing, is one of two things. And they both tie up to one central goal. The problem is either customer experience or its productivity in the back end. So if you have a manufacturing facility, how can you get more output? So when we think about automation, a lot of people will talk to us about McDonald's is putting up kiosks. That doesn't actually change the need for training your team more effectively on how to engage with those customers. The reason why McDonald's puts in those kiosks is a little bit, of course, to address the labor shortage, but it's also so that those employees can spend more time producing and driving revenue so managers can stay on the floor and not have to be coaching people every five seconds. So the technology for automation is also enhancing the worker. I'm all for it. I think it's fine. And we don't see it really impacting our world at all. But what it all pipes up to, even if employers are cutting labor over time, they're not cutting it as a means of lowering output. So it's really important to address the skill gap so that as I'm paying you more money, as I'm trimming back the workforce, I expect you to be producing. So that's why what we're constantly pushing for is productivity as a value proposition. Retention is important, mind you, but there's natural churn in frontline jobs. You can't solve it the same way you can in software. Dan, what are are some kind of milestones when you think about um, Opus and you think about the business and all the data that they're tracking uh, internally as a business, but you as somebody who thinks a lot about narrowing skills gaps, and and I know that you're concerned about like very American problems given our unique situation. I'm just curious, like what are some of the things that you think about this as a portfolio company, but also as a business that you're very interested in? What are some of the things we should be watching for? Obviously, like I can't speak to the business's internal metrics, but I think some of the things that we've been most excited to see as the company has grown and developed is there's a few ways to slice it, but one is the customers they're solving. So we've talked a lot about restaurants but they're also solving the problem for university campuses, golf courses, industrial manufacturers, home builders, like kind of list goes on and on. Um, And so it's been exciting to see them penetrate into new categories who have similar problems. And then also, I think just thinking about the depth at which the problem is solved, moving beyond just like this very basic training to really like a frontline engagement tool. Because at the end of the day, I think training is a piece of the puzzle. But if you're the CEO of a large restaurant group, in a market where you want to understand who your best performers are. And Opus can help you do that now because you have this sort of frontline visibility. But then also, like, you might want to be able to communicate with people directly, creating these new types of tools for having this connective tissue throughout the organization. It's just seeing it step beyond just being a basic utility and really creating something that's new and differentiated for, for this customer. 
I learned a lot. I'm still going to be the clueless market pundit guy on the unemployment <laughs> front. It's going to confound me for a while. And you know, it's funny. We go back and forth and listen. It's a great thing that we have unemployment where it is, right? Like the last thing, if, if the Fed's success in battling inflation is getting unemployment above 5%, I think that's a weird world to sort of be in. And it's also, Rachel, really great to hear some of the things that you have to say about automation because that was the fascination prior to the pandemic. And hopefully platforms like yours and people who are mission-driven like you can help solve some of these problems. That's what we hope. Next time you're listening to Darden or whoever on their earnings call talk about labor productivity, now they're talking about <laughs> AI-generated courses with Opus. Yeah. Listen, Rachel, I really appreciate you coming by and chatting with us. Rachel Nemeth of Opus and Dan Charan, Gutter Capital. Thanks Pleasure for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Thanks, Thanks Dan. Thanks for having us. If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.